Take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 4 today. I always come back from a trip ready to preach again. So we'll get out 2 o'clock today. We'll be good. You're not laughing. <laughs> I'm serious. No, it's a joke. We, we're excited to be back. We're excited to be going back here into James chapter 4 today. Uh, we are now heading into the last two chapters. We're about 60% of the way through this look at how our faith works out, how the things that we believe, how the, the life change that comes from Jesus Christ affects the way we live. And we, we looked last time, the last couple times, at the wisdom of God, the wisdom uh, that comes from above, that, that has to be a part of our lives in order to integrate and to see these changes happen. And they don't just happen by our, by our we're going to make ourselves do it. Now, we do have to be disciplined to follow the Lord sometimes, right? I mean, don't, don't you find that to be true? That, that even if you know, you've walked with the Lord for many, many years, sometimes it's harder some days you wake up, right? And so, but at the same time, we have to take into ourselves the word of God. As James says in James chapter 1, uh, that, that, that we, we graft it into our lives um, that we may do the things that God has called us to do. And so now we look at James chapter 4, where James continues on kind of some things that he talked about before, um, but, but really kind of fleshing them out more in James 4, verses 1 through 6. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members. You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war that you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In this passage today, we see the conflict of interest that takes place in our lives um, as we do not walk with the Lord and we instead go our own way and give into our own desires. Father, we ask that you would meet with us now as we open your word, that you would speak to us, that you would very clearly show us what is wrong in our lives through your word, that you would help us to see how we can correct it, that you would show us how you long to equip us to be ready to serve you better. Lord, no one in this room is perfect. Lord, we are on this side of eternity. We can never be there. But may we be longing to grow and to change. I pray for one who is here today, who hears the message of your word, who doesn't have a relationship with you, that you would speak to them and show them that your grace is enough. To the one who is struggling with sin, with things we even talk about today, we see in your word, would you show them your grace is enough? To the one who feels hopeless and lost, even though they have many in their lives surrounding them, would you show them that your grace is enough? We ask that you would be honored and glorified, that you would help me to say the words that you would have me to say, that I wouldn't get in the way of what you want to do here today. Through your word, your name we pray. Amen. Our world seems to be more and more defined by conflict, does it not? And I'm not just talking, and we obviously, that's, that's, that's 
heavy on our minds probably if you've tuned into the news at any time over the last month as war has heated up in Ukraine uh, with Russia. But it really is almost a miracle anymore when people get along with one another. From political views to, to nations at war, it just seems like conflict is constantly raging all around us. And many, many world leaders over the years have touted, what, a plan for peace. Yet, they have failed to deliver. But conflict isn't limited to, nor does it begin, on the world stage. No, many lives every day rage with personal, internal conflicts every day. This conflict within heats up into conflict without, and it soon our homes are set ablaze by the unmet wants and desires of man. And the church is not immune to its own share of conflict. And here James, in these six verses, addresses the issue of interpersonal conflict within the church. And he points us back to its root, and he gives us the unaltering answer to that conflict. And that unaltering answer is God and the grace of God shed through Jesus Christ. And what we see here is that because friendship with the world brings conflict with God and others, we must humble ourselves before God to find his grace giving us the pathway to true peace. We have to understand that if we live in a way that is a friend of the world, this is what we're going to see in our lives. This is what we're going to see. We're going to see conflict. We're going to see that worked out. Because of of who we are. And we have to see that because of that, the only answer to that is the grace of God. Whether we don't know the Lord or we do, we need his ongoing grace in our lives. And so here in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, James opens with the subject of personal conflict. He says, where do wars and fights come from among you? James has, has, in the end of chapter 3, closed this idea of worldly wisdom, and now he's transitioning into an area that's not entirely detached. If you remember back in in chapter 3, the outcomes of worldly wisdom in our lives uh, is confusion and, and conflict. Things that go against who God is will always be in conflict with who God is. And so James is calling here for believers to evaluate their own lives and evaluate their own conflicts that are coming up in their church. Now, sadly, church conflict is not something that's unusual in our day and age. You ever heard of a church having problems? You ever heard of a church having a split over something, right? Now, there's many jokes made about churches splitting over, what, the color of the carpet or, or this. I heard of one church that had three services based on where the piano was. And though that may seem extreme, believe me, these are not just made-up stories and far-fetched ideas. It's very easy for things to become a big, things that we think shouldn't be a big deal to become a big deal in a church. But church conflict isn't something new in our day and age. When we think of the early church, we think back to when James was writing here in the first century, we we really think, oh man, the church, we would have loved to be a part. You ever thought that? I would love to be a part of the church when it first started. Because we read in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 45, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles. 
apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided among them all as anyone had need. When you read that, do you think, yeah, that's what church is? You ever read that, thought that before? This is what church should look like. What a beautiful picture of the family of God. And just a few years later, we read in James chapter 4, where do wars and fights come from among you? Because wherever there are people, there are potential problems, right? Because even the best church, that's Beaverton Baptist Church, by the way, even the best church in all the world is still made up of what? Redeemed sinners by the grace of God. From the pastor to the, to the infant in the nursery, we are all sinners. And so, because of that, there are, there are potential for problems. As many a pastor has said, that ministry would be great if it wasn't for all the people. And so, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, addressing serious issues in the church. Sinful issues. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter two, two very or not chapter chapter four of two very specific individuals who were having an issue in the church. And James addresses this topic as well. The first century church had issues just like we do today. Aren't you glad for that? The church is the body of Christ. His bride made up of all the redeemed. And as such, we should live as reflections of our God. But it doesn't always go that way, does it? No. Instead, within the local manifestation to the body of Christ, within local churches, sometimes quite the opposite can be found. And James uses two words here to describe what is found. He, write, he writes, where do wars and fights come from among you? The word wars means a serious, prolonged combat. And this word fights means specific battles or combat, conflicts. These are serious words that he's using. These are literal words for warfare that he's using in context to things that are going on in the church. And this is not what God intended the church to be. The peace that we have with God through Jesus Christ should radiate out of our lives to show towards others, especially brothers and sisters in Christ. These wars and these fights that James mentions here can heat up in a church and begin to divide a local body of believers. And soon, what do you find in a church like this? Well, you have people who don't speak to each other anymore. Worse than that, maybe, you have people who don't speak kindly to each other anymore. You have people who are recruiting other people to their side of whatever the issue may be. And the question is, James rhetorically asks here, where do these wars and fights come from among you? James continues on, again with another rhetorical question to answer that. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war, in your members? See, here's the thing. Conflicts, and we're going to take 
conflicts within the church, because what James is addressing, conflicts within the body of, of, a, of believers are traced to individuals. It is the sinful nature of mankind that brings this about. And here, James dives in with this idea of personal conflict as he continues on in verse 1 through verse 3. And we see that, that what we have going on is there's a conflict within ourselves. There's conflict of self that's going on with these people in the church. The source of conflict with others is the conflict that rages inside of a person. Because the sin that rages within human hearts is the cause of all strife in our world. Sin brings conflict because sin is contrary to God. That sin that is so prevalent in our world that when you turn on the TV and you see all the things that are going on, you say, yeah, that's what sin brings. It's not absent from our churches. Because Christians who are out of step with the Holy Spirit are prone to go back into the old man's ways of living as well. There are also those in churches who, though they profess to be Christians, have never truly accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. They're playing the game. You can only play that game for so long before the truth is going to come out. Because that's not who you are. You can't make yourself be godly. Only God can change us. They live in their flesh all the time because that's that's the only thing that lost souls can do. And so now we look within at what comes out of a man and causes these problems. James says, do they not not come from your desires for pleasure that war and your members? James says, that this word, that, 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 that the desires or the, the, the conflict comes from this desire for, for this pleasure in our own lives. And what, what James uses here, talking about this desires for pleasure, um, it's a Greek word. It goes back to the Greek word hedone. Now, that may be a, a familiar word because it's a word that we use in English or we derive our word from English called hedonism. Hedone is a word meaning pleasure or strong desire. It is an uncontrolled personal desire to fulfill our own personal desires and lusts at the expense of all other things. It is living for the flesh unrestrained and wide open. This is sinful man's pursuit to fill his life with whatever he thinks will make him happy. This is what goes on in our world every day. By the way, this is what goes on in our own lives. When we step out of, when we get out of step with God and we begin to live for ourselves... That we think, whatever it is in my life, this is what I need to make me happy. It may be a possession. It may be a relationship. It may be a a promotion. You know what, though? It may be this idea of, I just want peace and I will do whatever it is to find that. I will put my foot down. I will make it happen. And it's my and me and this is what I want and this is what I need instead of what? Instead of looking to God. And anything that stands in my way to get that is viewed as an obstacle to this happiness. And Christians can give in to these same impulses. If we get out of step with God and begin to pursue something that we desire or we must have, we begin to wage war in ourselves. James says at the end of verse 1, it comes from your desires for pleasure that wage war in your Members. When James says members, he's not talking about members of a church. He's talking about your body, yourself, your person. You see, in our pursuits for things that we think will make us happy, there is no peace. 
will lead turmoil. When we give ourselves to an all-out pursuit of, I will get that no matter what it costs, no matter who I have to hurt in the process, no matter what, I have to, what, what boundaries I have to go over, we will not find the peace that we're looking for. There is no settled heart in one who lives like that. There is only grasping for what is next. Because no matter what it is that we put our stock in, if we do not put our stock in Jesus Christ and in God alone, there will always be something else that we have to have. There will always have to be another feeling that we need. There will always have to be another person that we need. There will always be another thing that we have to have. But not in God. He is everything. And this ungodly way of thinking settles in the hearts of not just the unsaved, but in the hearts of even God's people. Because we decide that we must have something, we must see something to be true in our lives in order to be happy. And again, it can be something, from a, something we, must, we feel like we have to have in our lives, a possession, to, to some sort of feeling of satisfaction that we have to have. And it happens in our own personal lives, and it begins to spill over into our churches, right? That, that we feel that this is the way something must be done, or else we won't be happy in this church. And it begins to cause conflict with one another. Or, or we feel like this is, that, that is the person I want to get to know, and, and this person is in the way of that relationship. And it begins to cause conflict. And when it does not happen, we go to war with other people. And when we pursue this, and we, we try to, to try to make things happen, we see that sometimes these things are frustrated and they cause bigger problems. James says in verse 2, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. When the desires of men are frustrated, things begin to escalate. And James shows us this here. Now, if you go to the Greek, this sentence structure here is very difficult. But I really think a better way to translate verse 2 goes like this. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. What James is showing us here is there's a progression. There's a progression of, of first, there's a lust. And, and the word behind lust is, is, means a, a strong desire for something that does not happen. I want this, this is what I want in my life, this is what I think I need, and I want this, and I desire it to happen, and it doesn't happen, and I get frustrated, and so if, if, if that doesn't happen, I'm going to do something about it. And James gives us the extreme example. If there's something we really want and we don't get it, people have murdered over things like that, have they not? How many people have been killed because someone else wanted what they have? There have even been those in churches. There have even been pastors who have killed a church member because of something they wanted in their life. There is what we have here, coveting, James says. Coveting, that word means to be zealously jealous of that which belongs to another. Okay, it's not just being jealous, like, but it's, it's zealously like I'm consumed with that. They have it and I want it. And that leads, James says, to fighting and to warring with others. Because if I cannot get what that person has, then I'm going to actively oppose and act against that individual. One living for his own desires gives in to coveting and everything that comes along with it. And now, 
the war has begun to heat up. We had a war that's going on within ourselves, that, that i got to have this, this is what I need, I need to fulfill this desire, and it's beginning to heat up to war with other people. And all of this is because of selfish desire that cannot be met outside of God. Do you realize that Jesus promised his followers to meet their needs? He told them to ask that they might receive. And James repeats that here in the end of verse 2. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. What James is talking about here is he's saying these who are, who are causing these wars, these fights, and these divisions among each other, they, have, they don't have these things because they're not asking of God. They're not fully depending on him. Now one, this could be because they don't know him. So why would they talk to God? Or two, it could be because they're living according to their flesh. And so what happens when we don't ask God? What happens when we don't depend on God? What are we saying to God? We're saying to God that we are self-dependent. We're saying to him that that we don't need him. That we can do this on our own. We'll figure this out. True peace of heart and true peace with others, though, comes only through dependence on God. Do you want to know why many don't see God work in their lives it's because, and God meet their needs? It's because they don't ask. How many of us, I'll start right here with myself, how many of us exhaust everything else in our lives before we even think about praying? How many of us, when something comes up in our lives and we say, oh, you know, I don't know what we're going to do, we begin to, to think through all the scenarios to fix the problem, and then when, that, when none of those work, you know, I guess we should pray about this. You ever had that happen? I know I have. And instead, we should be like a guy like, like Nehemiah that we've looked at on Sunday nights, who, who worked tirelessly for the Lord, yet what did he do every time something came up? He prayed. He went to the Lord. A true follower of Christ should run to God first in all things, but... Be warned. In verse 3, James shows us there's a stipulation for how we ask. He says, you ask. Okay, so there are some who aren't asking God. But he says, then there are some who do. You ask and do not receive. Stop right there. Wait a minute. Didn't we just say that they don't have because they didn't ask? Is that what we said, right? Well, this goes a little deeper than that. There are some who are asking and they don't receive. And James says, why? Because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Again, there's that word for that strong desire, that selfish, hedonistic mindset. Asking for things from God isn't just a blank check to ask for whatever you want. Asking for things from God, even if sometimes we think, well, it was a good thing, What is our motivation for asking that? What's the reason behind that? Asking for things from God must fall in line with who God is and what he wants for our lives. But that's not always the case, as James points out here. These people were asking and they were not receiving because the request was not for the glory of God, but for their own selfish desires. They were asking for things to be done so that they not not for him, but for them. 
God does not listen to and answer the requests of one seeking to live for his own glory because God is consumed with his name being lifted on high. God will not give us that which we will. And James uses a very interesting word here. He says, you ask, do not receive, because you ask amiss that you may spend it. And that word spend literally means squander, that you may squander it on your own pleasures. This is the conflict then that's created within ourselves. That we, be so, that we become so consumed with living for myself, and this is what I need, and this is what I must have, and this is what must be true in my life, and God, why don't you give me this, and why don't you... And it's me, and it's me, and it's my, and it's I need this, and, and nothing in our lives is about God. And for, for a non-Christian, that's normal. Right? For someone who doesn't truly know the Lord, that's how they're going to live their lives. But what's scary is sometimes we as Christians, we live our lives that way. We get so wrapped up in ourselves, and we get so wrapped up in who we are and what we have to have, that we begin, we begin even to, to bring these prayers before God. It's living in selfishness. It's living against God's creation of man. And it's living against God's, not God's creation of man, but against God's recreation of the redeemed. Because God created man in the very beginning. Why did God create man? Did God need man? No. Why did he create him? As Isaiah tells the the people of Israel, you were created for his glory. God recreates us at salvation for his glory. And God, when we live for ourselves and not for God, not only does that, that put us in some personal conflict, but what that does is that puts us in some serious spiritual conflict with God. Verse 4, James, James opens here in verse 4 with probably the strongest words in the entire letter. He says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? James is calling out the people of the church in Jerusalem for being adulterous. Now, this is not saying they were committing a physical act of adultery, but in the context, we understand that he is talking about spiritual adultery. And this is a picture. Remember, James' primary audience is Jewish. This is a picture that the Jews are going to be very familiar with because God often used this picture of his unfaithful people, Israel. In fact, there is an entire message of a prophet that uses this picture in the prophet of Hosea. The church is also called the bride of Christ. Paul wrote in Romans 7, 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. When we, who have claimed redemption through Jesus Christ, live instead for self and sin, then you and I, we are guilty of spiritual adultery. We are betraying the one who gave himself for us. Before the salvation of Jesus Christ, this picture could not be applied to Gentiles. Do you understand that? Before Jesus Christ came, who were God's people? They were his covenant people. Now, was it God's purpose that they would reach others with the message of of who their God is? Yes. 
But because of Jesus Christ and what we read about this morning in Hebrews and the new covenant that was initiated by the blood of Jesus Christ, we all have the opportunity to enter in this relationship with him. And so walking towards the world and walking towards its way of thinking is turning your back on God. Living in a way that gives in to sinful desires is what James says here, befriending the world. The lost world lives this way all the time. Because before you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, all you can do is live for yourself. Sure, you may accomplish some good things in your life, and you may even help other people. I mean, don't we look around in our world and see people who, who help other people? Right? But in the end, it's still a life consumed with selfish desires. To live this way is to love this way. James uses this word here. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? When James speaks here of friendship, he's speaking of fondness and a love for another. He's not talking about a casual interaction, but a close relationship. That's what this word carries here. Loving the ways of the world is involved with being the world's friend. And if you are the friend of the world, James says you are not a friend of God. In fact, the stated opposite is true. If you are a friend of the world, you are what? An enemy of God. This word here, when James says you're, that friendship with the world is enmity with God, the word enmity literally carries the idea of hostility towards God. Sin is an attack on God and his holiness. And a sinful lifestyle is an attack on God's holiness and his call to new living. The world is concerned with self. What are things the world is concerned with and consumed with? Self-satisfaction, self-glorying, self-promotion, self-serving, self-fulfillment. But the life of those who belong to Christ is to be consumed with the glory of God. And this works itself out in a giving of self for God and others. You see, the love of God changes us to live for Him. And Jesus, in John chapter 15... Described not enemies, but he described friends to his disciples. John 15, verses 13 through 19. Your love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, Christians are called by God to live in this world but not be of it. The thinking of the world, the pursuits of the world, the values of this world have no place in the life of a Christian. But everything we do 
We should be consumed with God. And if you look around, as Jesus says, if you look around, and we're just getting along just fine with the world, and we're, we're, we're just accepted, and, and nothing is any different, there's a problem. The world hates God. And it will hate the followers of God. Now, I'm not, I'm not advocating that you go out there and look for people to hate you in life. But understand that if you will stand for what's right, you'll find yourself in opposition to what is wrong to the world. God's ways and the world's ways are two mutually exclusive paths. But there's a sect of of people who go through life thinking that they're okay with God. Because, hey, I'm not openly hostile, right? You ever met those type of of people? You know, I often think of them I guess what makes me think of is that, that bumper sticker. Okay, here we are, bumper sticker theology this morning, okay? Coexist, right? You ever seen those, right? And I'll apply my favorite, human, uh, my favorite Hebrew word to that, you know, baloney. But it's this idea, right, that, hey, I don't have a grudge with anybody. You believe what you believe. It's this my truth, your truth sort of thing, right? And here's the idea, right? Well, I mean, I'm not openly hostile to God, I don't, I don't say bad things about God. I, I don't pick on people who, who go to church or, or do this or do that. So, so I'm okay with God. That's not true. There is no neutral with God. There is no in the middle. There is no, well, I'll be okay if I don't. You're either a friend of God or an enemy of God. And God has pretty specific stipulations about what it means to be a friend. God has pretty specific expectations of how his friends live. If you think that God is okay with you just because you haven't outright cursed him out of your life, you have some serious evaluating to undertake in your life. Because you cannot live for the things of this world and the things of God at the same time. But let's stop and ask the question, is it not true that Christians will give in to worldly, ungodly thinking sometimes? What do you think? Will Christians do that? Yeah. But will true followers of Jesus Christ remain in that place unconvicted and undisciplined by God? Absolutely not. We must say, that we must realize that on board every Believer on this earth is a willing participant, is our flesh in the schemes of Satan and sin. And so there is a spiritual conflict that comes from living in this way. One, if we don't know the Lord, we're in conflict with him. And if we do know the Lord, we're still in conflict with God as we are not living the way he's called us to. And so we see this conflict with God in verse 5. We have here, or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? This verse, verse 5, is one of the most difficult verses to translate from the Greek. You realize that that Greek manuscripts, they don't have capitalization, they don't have punctuation marks. It's a fun thing to read, okay? And so there are some questions that that surround, you know, how, how to capitalize some of these words and and these sorts of things. 
But if you look in the context of what we're talking about, I think the following translation, and this comes actually from the King James, um, is, is how this one is, where it's translated this way. I think this probably fits the, the context best from what I've read. It says, Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? What is James saying here? That within man, there is a spirit of envy and sin. Ever since what we have recorded in Genesis chapter 3, ever since the fall of man, it's been that way. That we have been sinners. It is a spirit of enmity against God. And within even redeemed believers, we said there's that old man who will sometimes rear his ugly head. And we need the help of God to keep walking with him and to do what is right. And if we do not, then we are not right with God. And if we continue unrepentant in our sin, we will face the consequences of our sin. If you live, if you say, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of God, and you truly know the Lord is your Savior, and you continue to live selfishly, you continue to live in your sin, you continue to live consumed by, by, by those things, then you will be disciplined for your sin. That is not a scare tactic, that's just the truth. Just, just as any child who disobeys their parents will face discipline from a, from a loving parent, so too does God discipline his children. Now let's flip the coin over. If you continue to live in your sin and, and experience not the conviction of God and experience not the discipline of God in your life, that should scare you to death. It is not unusual, is in fact common, and it's going to happen that, that Christians will struggle with sin. It should bother you if you sin and it doesn't bother you. It should raise big questions in our hearts. What is going on in my life that, 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 that I claim to belong to God and I don't experience the conviction of sin? For those who belong to God, through Christ, live new lives. That is, that is undeniably the way of our new nature in Christ. But sometimes, do you ever find that sometimes in your life, sin and its pull is so strong? Sometimes it just seems easier to do what is wrong and forsake that which is right. You ever felt that way? Sometimes, even if we know it's wrong, even if we know there are consequences, we are tempted to give up and to give in. If we're honest, the sin of pleasing self, even if it means causing conflict with God and others, feels good in the moment. Otherwise, sin would have no pull. Do you, do you ever just hate sin? Do you ever just hate what it does to your life? Do you ever just hate that you continue to give in to it when you know you shouldn't? And there's a difference, by the way. There's a difference between hating sin and hating the, that, I, that I'm guilty now. There's a huge difference between those two. 
Okay? I mean, we see that in the lives of our children. There are times you, you tell your children, and this may or may not be inspired by true life events, there are times you tell your children not to do something. And this is the consequence if you do X, Y, Z. And they do X, Y, Z, and they face consequences, and they're upset. Are they upset because they sinned? Well, that's the goal, right? But especially early on, they're upset. Why? Because there was a, there was a consequence. We should ask God to continue to help us to hate sin and love him. Not just that we would hate how we feel after we sin. Not just that we would hate the consequences of our sin, but that we would actually hate the sin itself. And in our home, you know, we tell our kids not to use the word hate. It's okay to hate that. We should want to hate it. You know why? Because God hates sin. We should hate our selfishness as much as God does. We should hate the consequences of our sin But there are times in our lives when we look around and we say, what do I do? I don't know how to overcome this sin. I don't know where to find victory. I don't know how to resolve the conflict. I have conflict in myself. I have this conflict with God. But God tells us, or James tells us through God's Holy Spirit, that there is a way in our lives to overcome this conflict. In verse 6, but, and I love, you've heard me say it before, I love this word, because there's so much contrast represented in this little word. He gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What we see here is God's incredible grace that God gives to all who come to him true, unmatched Grace. What is grace? It is unmerited favor. It is God giving us that which we do not deserve. And it is exactly what we need to overcome sin. And I really feel, I really feel that, that the English translation here fails us to understand what, this, what, what, what James is saying here. He gives, it says, more grace, really a better word, greater grace. Are you feeling trapped in your sin? God's grace is greater. Are you, do you feel like you've gone too far away from God? God's grace is greater. Has your selfish focus created conflict with others? God's grace is greater because God's grace is greater than your sin. And in that grace, we find new life. And in that grace, we find continued strength to live in that new life for him. And we oftentimes think of God's grace when it comes to salvation. That God in his grace gives to us eternal life. That's what you do not deserve. And his mercy withholds that which we do deserve, his eternal punishment. And is that one of the primary applications of grace? Yes. But it doesn't end there. The grace of Jesus Christ that is poured out on the cross continues to have an effect on your entire life. Where as a Christian do you find the strength to say no to sin and yes to pleasing God in the grace of God? Where as a Christian do you find the strength 
to respond to someone who is treating you sinfully in the love of God, in the grace of God? Where do you, as a Christian, run to to find any help in any, in any time that you need it to the grace of God? The grace of God that begins at salvation continues on in your sanctification and will be that which brings you to your glorification. God is gracious to continue to give us all we need to live for him. But just as earlier, there's a little bit, there's a stipulation about asking and receiving. Do you notice the stipulation here? How do we receive God's grace? Is God's grace freely available? Yes. But those who seek it and desire it must seek it how? Humbly. And why is that? Because the one who is prideful, the one who, who is self-sufficient, the one who, who, who seeks only his own gratification, what does he think he needs from God? Nothing. So what does he receive from God? Nothing. Actually, let's take it a step further. You know what he receives from God? Opposition. This is a quote. Um, James, James is quoting Proverbs 3.34 here. Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. James says God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And that word resist isn't like, oh, doesn't pay attention. No, this is active This is an active resistance. This is an active pushing back. If you think that you can go through life self-sufficiently, you're going to find opposition from God. God designed us to be dependent on Him. God sets Himself then against the pride, the proud. The proud are those who arrogantly set themselves above others. They believe that they need nothing and they live consumed with themselves. And though they may seem successful at times, they will ultimately fall. You ever thought that? You ever looked around? Thought, man, look at all these people not living for God and they're getting away with it. You ever thought that? By the way, the psalmist thought that many times. Remember, God is the balancer of all scales. God is the victor of all wars, and all those who oppose God will be defeated. But God says to the humble, there's grace. To the one who confesses his need of salvation and comes to the cross, he will be made new and whole. To the Christian who comes to God seeking help in time of need, he will find the strength of God's grace. And God's grace is needed every day that we live on this earth. We need that grace that we may interact with others in a way that pleases him. We need that grace in our actions, our responses, our words, our tones. And we can find it when we humbly admit to God that we need him. And so when you ask yourself this question, how do I live for God? It is by the grace of God. It is by his strength. That which he so longs to give to us if we but humbly seek him. 
Because friendship with the world brings conflict with God and others, we must humble ourselves before God to find his grace giving us the, path, the, the pathway to true peace. I don't think that it's wrong to say that we should naturally expect a church to be a place where the grace of God shines most brightly. Maybe I should back that up. A Bible-preaching church. Within the walls of a place that preaches and teaches the word of God should be trophies of God's grace. Yet, if we do not humbly live for the glory of God, in the grace of God, this will not be the case. Inevitably, you're going to have conflict in your lives with others. That's just the way life works. And if you sit here and go, oh, I've never had a conflict with anyone. Okay, either A, you're a hermit, or B, you just don't have enough life experience yet. It's going to happen. In fact, you want me to take a step further and scare everybody away? Guess what? One day you and I are going to disagree on something. Okay? It'll probably be about how the Braves are the best baseball team in the world and all that. Okay? No, I mean, that's going to happen, right? We're going to disagree. Why? Because at the moment... In that moment, one or both of us may not be walking with God the way we should be. So how are we going to handle that situation? Now you may find conflict with one who does not know the Lord and is living for themselves. So in that moment, you have to ask yourself this question. How can I show them the love of God while standing for what is right? We're not talking about backing down off what God says, but we need to show them the love of God while we do it. It is not right to revert to sinful words and actions because we feel provoked. But we can respond in a Christ-like manner. We look around in our world, even those who profess to be, be Christians and followers of God, they participate in the same things about things they don't like, whether it be politics or anything else. As a pastor friend of mine used to say, pigs love mud, don't get in the mud. Walk with God. Other times, we'll find ourselves at odds with a fellow Christian. And maybe because that person is living for themselves, and maybe we have to realize, maybe because I'm, I'm off track here, or perhaps we both are. So we have to think on this passage of Scripture at such time, and, and we have to ask the Lord to convict us of our sin that we may be harboring in our ways, that we may be living as opposed to him, and we need to humbly seek his grace. And if you do not know the Lord as your Savior, you are an enemy of God. You and I, we don't get to remain neutral when it comes to God. We're either one of God's own or we're not. You're either part of his family or you're his enemy. So hear the voice of Jesus calling to you today that he wants, that he wants to save you from his, your sin and show you his grace. Ideally, these words on conflict, this, this whole idea of what James is talking about, comes ahead of anything we may experience, right? Isn't that the ideal situation? That we hear this, we go, oh, that's good, I'll remember that for when I come into conflict with someone else. But that's not always the case. 
Maybe you're here today and, and you're dealing with conflict with another person. You, you're, you're like, that's me. I'm, I'm there. I'm in the conflict. So what do you do with it? Will you just let it sit and stew and grow greater and greater in its unpleasantness before God? Or will you seek the grace of God to deal with this in the way that he requires? And still there's another, there's another place, right? You may look back on your life and say, wow, I didn't handle that right. Well, that's, that's, that's pretty messed up. What are you going to do about it? Just let it sit? And, and bitterly think about those things and look on it? Or will you go in the grace of God and deal with it? Will we humble ourselves to go to another person and say, I was wrong? Will you please forgive me? The grace of God allows us in harmony to live in harmony with others if we will humble ourselves before him. True peace is only found through Jesus Christ. Maybe it's silly. We've already gotten a bumper sticker theology, so we can get into t-shirt theology. There's a shirt that was out a couple years ago. I saw people wearing, and it's one of those things like, I, oh, it's goofy, but the more you think about it, it's, it's kind of deep, Right? You ever see it says, no Jesus, no peace? And in the middle it has highlighted, no Jesus, no peace. And I go, okay, all right. It's corny, it's goofy, okay? But there's truth there. The only way to eternal peace and out of, any con- and out of conflict is through Jesus Christ. And the only way, by the way, and the only way beyond that to live as a Christian in harmony with one another is through a continued, humble relationship with, with God through Jesus Christ. That we actively live this out. And in doing so, we can be a body of believers that reflects the love of God to those around us. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the grace that is poured out at the cross and that continues on in our lives. Lord, if we're honest, truly honest, we must realize that we deserve not just nothing from you. We deserve eternal punishment because of our sin against a holy, eternal God. And Lord, as Christians, would you, would you help us to live in light of that? Would you help us to, to be in awe of the grace of God. And would you keep us humble before you? Lord, we're so thankful for a place like Beaverton Baptist Church that you have given to us in your grace that we can fellowship with believers, that we can serve alongside one another for you. But Lord, we must admit that even a place like this, there are going to be times of conflict It may not be with another person in this church. You know, it may start with someone in our own home. Now, Lord, would you give us the grace to work through these things in a biblical manner? Would you give us the grace to reflect you and how we deal with these things? And would you give us the grace to not walk away and say, well, there goes another relationship. I'm just going to toast that one. 
Would you instead give us the grace to see relationships redeemed because of your grace? Would you humble us? We ask that you'd work on our hearts today. And we ask that you would watch over us as we go home. Help us to continue to meditate on these things. May we live in a way that honor you today. Bring us back together tonight to worship you. In your name we pray. Amen.